Welcome to the MOH podcast. This is podcast number six. I'm glad to have you along. Uh, we're going to be listening to a, a winky tape this morning that is, um, quality-wise, it's not one of the better better tapes that we found, but it uh, content-wise, it's really powerful. And uh, I've got links uh, on the Podbean uh, page there for the uh, tracks that Winky mentions in there. He mentions uh, a number of tracks you can look up. I've got the links for those, so you can go to the moh.org discipleship training materials and find those. We're going to be taking off here in just a second. I just need you to put on your seatbelts and your helmets because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And uh, thanks for tuning in. And here's Winky with How to Be Religious Without Being a Christian. Your Bibles, please. To any one of three Gospels. (laughs) Because the story we're going to just look at as a beginning place here is a story that is repeated in all three of the Gospels. And uh, it is the story of the seed that fell on different ground. You call it parable in the sower. So you look up any place you like. You could look at Mark 4 if you like, or Book of Luke. Let's have a look at Luke and see if I can find it there for you. Uh, Luke chapter 8 may be another one that you might like to look at. Let's read from... Let's look at... I'll read from Mark 4, but you can read from any other place you like. And he began again to teach them by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. The whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and he said unto them in his doctrine, Listen, behold, there went out a sower to sow. It came to pass as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched because it had no root. It withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of him the parable. And he said, Unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all these are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive. Here's that rejection of light that God begins to blind the minds we talked about earlier. And hearing they may hear and understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sin should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Do you not know this parable? How then will you not know all parables? The sower soweth the word. This is not the parable of the sower and the seed. It is the parable of the soils, because in each case the sower sows the same seed. It's the same sower, the same seed. But in each case the seed falls on different kind of soil. And these are they that are by the wayside. When the word is sown, when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, and taken away the word that was sown in their hearts. 
Bible tells us, looking at the other passages, that this first seed fell on hard ground. The ground was hard. So the seed, instead of falling into the ground, just sat there a prey for the devil. And uh, these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Now, stony ground is not ground that has stones in it. It is ground that is just below the surface, very rocky and very hard. But it has a thin layer of topsoil covering it, sort of a loaming over the top of it. And uh, those of you who have done any gardening will know that the topsoil is very rich in, uh, in nutrients from the nitrous oxides and that from the air after thunderstorms. It's a very uh, good fertilizer. It's that fine loaming soil. Now, this plant, the seed fell into this fine loaming soil. The top was all right on the, on the surface. But it went in and the, the roots couldn't get down into this rock and so they begin to grow out sideways. And because they're growing out sideways, this plant is grabbing all the nutriment from the, from the topsoil and of course, with that super fertilization on the top, it springs up very, very rapidly. You say, wow, this plant is growing fast. It, it just goes just all over the place. It just shoots up and wham. Fantastic plant. The tragedy is this. They receive it with gladness, the Bible says, and they have no root in themselves and so endure for a time. And afterwards, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, when the sun begins to shine, immediately they are offended. The other passages tell us they dry up and they die. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, here are people that hear the word. Apparently the ground seems in order. At least it's not rocky and it's not hard. It goes in. They begin to grow. The scripture tell us that thorns grew up around it. This plant, as it grew, and choked it. until finally the plant died. And it tells us what these thorns are. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then, standing in contrast to these three soils, stands the good soil, the soil that heard the word of God, that understood it, Luke tells us, that received it and with a good and honest heart brought forth fruit. Now the Bible tells us specifically how to be religious without being a Christian. And it tells us also how to be Christian without falling into the trap of religiousness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our session this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the things we've learned. All of us have learned here. We who have shared in the ministry have learned. We have learned from the lives that have been changed. We thank you for the men and for the women you've brought to this place. How we praise you, Lord, for 
calling together a band of people who love you and who really want to see you glorified and honored in this nation and our ministries. Now, Father, we come to serious subjects because we are dealing with your word and we are dealing with what the whole heart of what you died for is about. We are dealing with the gospel, the message that you've called us to preach and to carry. For days now, Lord, you, as the Holy Spirit, have run your plow over our hearts and broken us up and help us re-examine our motives and made us men and women that you could trust dealt with us personally and now oh God help us to look at the message afresh that we may not only be God's men but have God's message and Lord I look to you this morning deliver us from the religiousness of a false Christianity I ask it in Jesus lovely name and promise you the glory Amen the Lord Jesus in earlier passages we have read this week warned us what would be the sign of the last days? Religious deception. Do not forget it in the ministry. In the last days, many Christs will come. Many people will turn to fables and heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, not willing to obey the truth. It is always possible, terribly possible, to be religious without being a Christian to be evangelically religious, even, without being a Christian. And may I say it, Pentecostally religious, without being a Christian. And the Lord Jesus warned us many, many times of this danger. The Gospels are full of warnings against counterfeit conversion. The epistles continually exhort us that we are to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. The book of Revelation warns us that the only people who make it into God's new world are those who overcome. Who overcome. And there is a testing process right through the Bible, a sifting, refining fire that tries the work of every man to see whether it will stand the test of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Here is a story of three kinds of seed. It is a deeply important story because it is one of the few stories that is repeated three times in the Gospel. And if you say something to somebody three times, in three different ways, you hope that they'll get the message of it. Now, do we look at these stories that are repeated over and over again for our edification? Why does God bother to put them two or three times if it is not a deeply, terribly important thing for us to understand? And I have spent many, many hours and many, many days in this parable that is repeated so often, trying to search my ministry again and again to make sure that the message I preach is a pure message, one that comes from the heart of God, one that honors his son and honors his word. Three kinds, three kinds of seed, and may I say, three kinds of counterfeit conversion, three kinds of phony faith. I believe the greatest danger of the 20th century church is the danger that will come from our pulpits when we fail to read the Word of God and fail to preach the message of God. And for three years, my early ministry, I did not know the message of the Bible. I copied other preachers, I copied their styles, copied their mannerisms, and unfortunately copied their message. And unfortunately had the same result. Why is this nation going to hell faster than any other time in its history? 
If we have one million converts every year, that bothers me no end. Three kinds of seed. No, one kind of seed, one message. Three kinds of sowers. No, sower is not to blame in this. But in each case, the soil is different. And I believe the Lord Jesus gave this parable to finger the lack of preparation his servants give to the soil before the word of faith is sown. Now, do we break up the fallow ground, as Hosea says? Do we learn and do we know how to run the plow over the heart of a man so when the gospel seed is sown, it will bring forth fruit many times we want to see young people give their lives to Jesus Christ that will go on and on and on and lead not just one or two, but 60 and, and hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't care if I had 3,000 decisions. You give me two disciples. That's all I... I want to see people who honor God by their preaching. A kid I can trust. I don't have to hold his hand. I don't have to stand around making sure he's not going to backslide the following day. I've had enough of that. For three years, I babied kids along, held their hands, tried to cater to their every slightest little whim, worried myself sick at night because I thought, if I'm not over there watching, he's going to backslide. And finally it came to a point in my ministry, I said, Oh God, if this is the way it is, I had, as a young Christian, when I first went to school and started witnessing, I led 60 kids to Jesus the first three or four months I was in school. And, and I was really keen to do a work for Christ. But the thing that bothered me, I really thought I'd done a good job, the kids were coming. The thing that bothered me was at the end of that year, I could count on the fingers of one hand the kids that were still going on. And it wasn't, I'm dead sure before God it wasn't my lack of sincerity. I prayed, I fasted, I spent a great deal of time on my knees. I was as keen as I possibly could be before the Lord. And I searched my heart again and again. I kept saying, God, what's wrong with me? I can't, I don't understand why these kids keep dropping out all the time. And then God showed me, son, it's your message. Change your message. Change your message. Preach what my word says and you'll find it. And that was a scary thing for me because for years I'd, I'd done this and I'd... But I, was, I had committed myself to seeing Jesus on it. I wanted to see him on it. And it came to a point in my life before the Lord shared this with me that, that I was going to give up the ministry. I said, what is the use of preaching? You can preach to a million people and see them all rush down altars. What is the use of preaching if they don't go on? What is the use of bringing people to Jesus Christ if you've got to keep on uh, making sure they don't backslide all the time? And it finally came to a point, I said, Oh God, I'm going to take one kid, win him to Christ, and hold his hand until we both die, and then I'll know we'll get to heaven. That's the thing that I was into. And then the Lord started to teach me some things. The world is full of religious people that are not Christians, and we can say this, oh yes, I know who you're talking about, brother. You're talking about the Hare Krishna movement, how religious they are, how deeply, intensely religious they are. You could say, yes, brother, I know you're talking about, you're talking about the Baha'is with their universal world faith. 
You're talking about those people who are studying Eastern thought and philosophy over there in, uh, in India and here in the United States. Or you may think, um, you say, you're talking about the liberals and the modernists in the backslidden social gospel churches who stand up and preach on politics and on this and that. That's who you're talking about when you say, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about evangelical churches. I'm talking about churches that preach what they call a full gospel. That's what I'm talking about. Because I have been in those churches. For seven years I have preached in churches. My heart is in Jesus' church. I want to see reformation come to the church. I want to see the church of Jesus Christ become that thing which it is in God's sight, a pure, holy bride, not a prostitute. And when I go into a church and I see what I see, it breaks my heart. And the reason why I recognize phonies in faith is because for six years I was there. What is the difference between being religious and being a Christian? What is the one essential thing that separates true faith from false hope? What is the one thing that can save us from being religious without being a Christian? The difference is essentially this. All the faiths of man are based on one hope, man's ways of finding God. And the Bible exactly reverses that order and reveals to us God's way of finding men. And the question is, brothers, sisters, are we going to do it man's way or God's way? You write tracts about men are looking for God and you go right across the Bible. The Bible says God is looking for man. It says the wicked through the pride of his heart will not seek after God. God is not in his thoughts. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, if there were any that did seek after God. They are all together become filthy. They are all together become unrighteous. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And the difference of the Bible way and man's way is this. God has a way to deliver a man from sin. That's the Bible faith. All other faiths I have ever studied show a way a man to ignore sin or deny sin or to live without bothering about his sin. But the Bible faith, the one that Jesus came to die for, is a message of delivering men from God's greatest enemy, sin. And in the book of Matthew 1.21 we read these words. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now I saw a young lady, she came up to me. She said, oh yes, we have sin and we have sins. Now I still have a great deal of sin in my life, but God has saved me from some of my sins. I said, oh, really? Where do you get the distinction? She whapped over to 1 John and said, here, here. Showed me a couple of places. I want you men just to do this, please, if you make artificial distinctions between sin and sins. Just read the Bible. 
and see how many times God says sin and talks about an act and not some kind of physical thing or nature that produces sins. Read how many times God says sins is that which a man is by his choice. Just read it. That's all I ask. Take a concordance and see if there's a distinction. Yes, there is a distinction between sin and sins. One is plural, one is singular. That's the only distinction. This girl came up and she said, Oh, well, you know, I said to her, Listen, young lady, have you given up your selfishness? She said, Well, I've given up a few sins, but of course nobody ever gets clean of sin. I said, Oh, really? I said, Are you a Christian? She said, Of course I am. I'm saved. I, would, I always ask kids then, What are you saved from? But I turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And I said to her, could you help me read this out? I said, sometimes I have problems with my eyesight. I read it out. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he shall save his people from hell. She looked at it. She said, oh, no, that's not right. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Let me read it again. You shall bring forth a son, call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people in their sins. She said, oh, it doesn't say that. I said, what does it say? She said, it says from their sins. And, she, and then I said, what do you think the difference is between in and from? She said, well, I'm not sure. I said, I'll tell you the difference. It's the difference between heaven and hell. And as a result of that meeting, which grew and grew and grew until we had the whole church there, God did a work in those kids' lives that had never been done in their life before. They got cleaned up. Kids who'd been messing around with sin for years and years and years got delivered within two days of that meeting. And as a result of that, God opened the door to a whole series of denominational camps that Tony and I have both preached in and seen many, many scores of young people really get saved. Now, this is not a popular message I'm giving you this morning. But it is a needed message. And I've committed myself not to being popular, but to pleasing Jesus Christ. I want to give you this morning three false pictures of sin. Before we start this, I'll just give you a simple definition of a Christian that I found very helpful. A Christian is somebody who is saved from sin and glorifies Jesus Christ in his life. It's a difference between true faith and false faith. True Christianity saves from sin and glorifies, loves, talks, exalts, puts number one in the life, Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. If I find a man who's turned his back on his selfishness, he may have struggles, he may have temptations and trials. If I find a man who really has turned his back on selfishness and Jesus is number one in his talk, the Bible Jesus is number one in his talk then I have found a Christian, a brother. And I don't care what other doctrinal differences we have. I can hug him. He's a brother. And I'll call him a brother. Christian, to me, is somebody for whom Christ died, in whom Christ lives, and through whom Christ works. Bible Christian. Let me give you this morning... As there are three counterfeit things, there are three false pictures of sin. There are three kinds of counterfeit conversions. 
instead of going through all of these, I refer you to three tracts which are over there. One is called The Religion of Fear. That talks about the hard ground type character. And uh, secondly, there's one called The Carnal Christian. That talks about the one that got in the weeds and wiped out. And then there's one called The People Pleasers. That's the one that grew up quickly, sprung up, and the sun persecution arose and it rejected. Here are three false pictures of sin. Number one, sin is not natural. Not natural. How many times have I preached in a place and a young person has come up to me with sin written all over their face and said, I have a problem. And I said, young lady, you have. And they say to me, well, I'm, you know, I've got a lot of problems. I can't pray and read my Bible. And I say, I can understand that, doing the things that you're doing. She says, well, what am I doing? And wham, bam, we nail it. She says, oh, yes, but, you know, after all, I'm only human. How, what kind of a slap in the face is that to God? To say that the thing that for which his son died and shed his blood is natural. That is to take the stand of the new theologians who say that sinfulness is equal to being human. That the reason why man is a sinner is because he is finite and finiteness equals sinfulness and that no man will ever be infinite and so all man will always be sinful. And that doesn't matter anyway because God is going to save everybody. And we get our new universalism and neo-orthodoxy. One good little book if you want to read this to see just how the gospel ought not to be preached is The Parables of Peanuts. Boy, that book came out of hell. Take Charlie Schultz's little diagrams and write with it a new theology that will usher in a new age of universalism. Sin is not natural. It never is natural. God made human beings. God did not create sin. Doesn't the Bible say God created evil? It says God says this, I make peace and create evil. And evil in the Bible is not always sin. God says for a nation, if a nation gets into trouble, I will make evil for it. Send in tornadoes, mess the place up to judge it. The opposite of evil in that sense is peace, not goodness. The Bible never tells us God made sin. Stupid. It's saying that God is unwise. Saying that God offered his own unhappiness, which is foolish. Can a thing which has brought such agonizing grief to the heart of God be offered by the wisest person in the universe? I am not anywhere near as wise in the tiniest little piece like the great God, but I do not knowingly offer my own unhappiness. If I did something wrong which will later bring unhappiness, I do it because I believe at the time that this 
would bring me greater happiness and I find out afterwards that God is right and I was wrong. Now, I think the thing we really have to watch here is that we give new Christians especially, we give these new Christians a preparation to sin. How many times have I been in counseling sessions where we give Christians, new Christians, maybe they're really Christians, a little counseling booklet and we go through four good verses to help you in your new life. And then we put in one, you know, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Notice what the word says. If, not when. And we go through this, all right now, and you're going to sin pretty soon, so here is this verse. Now when you sin, use this verse. This will help you out. What kind of garbage is that? So this young Christian, he says, oh, wow, you know, everybody gets back into the same life they came out of. Two weeks later, he backslides, and we're surprised. <gasps> what a shocking thing. Listen, God has designed the scriptures so that when, if, a, if a, Christ, a guy gives his life to Jesus Christ, and if through foolishness or ignorance or falling back in an old habit pattern, he falls into sin, it should become as a complete shock to him. It should grieve his heart. It should, God re removes a sense of his presence. And he should be broken over. He said, oh God, what have I done to you? That, that is the kind of thing that should be in the heart of a new convert. We'll keep them holy. I think of a young lady that came into a church in New Zealand. Came to this deacon. Supposed to be a very special man in the church. He said to her, how is it with your soul, young lady? She said, I'm so happy. She said, I, I can't sleep. Been a Christian for two weeks. She said, I'm so happy I can't sleep at night. You know what he said? Don't worry. You'll soon get over it. Tragedy. Double tragedy. Tragedy that a man who is supposed to be a man of God said that. Double tragedy that all too often it should be true. Sin is not natural. Listen, every time you tell a lie, a lie detector reacts, and that tells me. Sin is not natural. Every time you have guilt, remorse, and sorrow in your life, they are three witnesses saying, not natural. The Lord Jesus Christ was our example of perfect humanity. And he did not sin, neither was guile found in his lips. Don't tell me sin is human. It never is. It never will be. God's human beings who love him in the next world do not live selfishly. It is not human. Secondly, Sin is not unavoidable. One of the favorite heresies of the past, which is rapidly becoming a heresy of the present, is that God has given us some laws which are impossible to keep, that man cannot help but do what God told him not to. Poor man. Aren't we trying to preach so that men will feel themselves guilty before God? If you can't help what you're doing, you tell me how you can feel guilty at the same time. Now, I've done that so many often. I say to a young person, listen, you can't help what you're doing. You can't help being sinful. That's the way we're all at. That's the way we've been made. But God hates your sin. And, you know, 
for a while, the logic of this completely escaped me, like that, that guy who buys cars. He says, I really like this car. I bought 16 of them. It's a good car. You know, it, the logic of it, for a while, escapes me. But all I know is that the guy never gets under conviction. He says, oh, yeah, cool. I'm a sinner, you know. I saw in the days of some of these men of God we've talked about, they said, you are a sinner. And they felt it. Wham! And they broke. And I said, well, that's funny. They don't break with me. They said, oh, yeah, sinner. Cool. What next? You know? Well, believe in Jesus. Fine. What do I have to sign? You know, and it's, wow. Some people get saved between radio programs. Well, I've got 30 seconds. I've got just enough time to get saved and then listen to the next program. Good night. What is this thing? This thing that the Bible talks about such a fantastic, climatic change in a person's life. Calls it death into life, marriage, every possible mind-blowing experience that you could think of, God puts on salvation. No. Listen, society has said, you can't help sin. That's why we don't treat people as guilty anymore. We call them sick. And why do you think people are calling people sick? Because for about 50 or 60 years, the kids who grew up in church and listened to the fact that nobody could help what they were doing, one day became doctors, lawyers, and educators. And suddenly we look at society around us and say, that's funny. Why don't these people call sin by its right name? And I'll tell you why. Because they've been listening too carefully as kids from the pulpits. That's why. Let's look at the Bible. We have seen society says you can't help what you're doing. You're sociologically determined. Biology would say man is just an animal. He inherits animalistic tendencies. Be with him all his life till he dies and turns into dust. Society says this. The pulpit every now and then says God gave good laws for man that he couldn't keep because he knew he couldn't keep them. Listen, you tell me what kind of God this gives to the sinner. Here's a dad, and he says to his little kid, kid, fly around the room. Kid looks up at his dad, says, what's that? Says, kid, you fly, you fly like a bird right now. <laughs> Not getting off the ground. Kid! You better start flying rapidly. <laughs> if you don't fly, kid, I'm going to kill you right here and now. <laughs> Question. The dad has passed this impossible law to show what a wise and kind and good father he is. You present that God to the sinner and tell him God is love and you watch him laugh in your face and he deserves to. We hear this said, let's see what the Bible says. We hear, men can't obey God. Now let's see what God says. If we're going to preach from his book, can man obey God? Moses thought so in Deuteronomy 5.4. He called all Israel and he said, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. And the Lord commanded us, Deuteronomy 6.24, to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Notice, 
for our good. Are the Ten Commandments the very bare base minimum of the law, which is a letter written expression of the love law that God rules his universe with, governs his own conduct with? Are the Ten Commandments some arbitrary thing God sat down and thought up and said, I'm going to pass this on man just to prove that I can take as much fun away from them as possible. For our good, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And then <clears throat> further, in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, What does the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God and to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord, and his statutes, which I command thee this day, for thy good. Joshua thought you could keep the Lord's commands. He said in Joshua 22.5, But take diligent heed to do the commandment, and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and serve him with all your heart and soul. Ezra thought you could keep the law of God in uh, 7, 23 and 26. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done. And whosoever will not do the law of God, let judgment be executed speedily upon him. David thought you could keep the law of God. Psalm 40, verse 8. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant and do those that, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. And then Psalm, at Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18. Psalm 48. I delight to do thy will, O God, Thy law is within my heart. And don't tell me that there's two gods, an Old Testament God full of anger and viciousness and bitterness, and a New Testament God full of love and kindness and, and sentiment. The same God wrote the Old Testament. The same God wrote the New Testament. The same commands have always been in effect because the commands of God are not arbitrary. Daniel thought we could keep the law of God Daniel 9, 9 to 10, To the Lord God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And Daniel 9, 9 to 10, To walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And they cannot be changed or suspended. Now, some people have this idea, the Lord Jesus came along to throw away the law. I want you to know something. Every single commandment in the Bible, with the exception of the day necessary on which the Sabbath is observed, which is not the commandment that we ought to have one day of rest a week, is a command. It ought not to be changed or suspended. You try to work seven days a week and you'll self-destruct within a short time. The day on which it is observed has been a, an area of hassle and controversy. But it's interesting that every single law of the Old Testament is reinforced and made stronger by the New Testament in the New Testament revelation. I'm not going to go through all of these. You just look. Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 17 to 18, some people think that the Lord Jesus came to do away with his Father's Ten Commandments and to give something else instead. I wish they mean that God no longer considers holiness a necessary part of the Christian life. Instead, he's replaced it with sentiments called love. That philosophy is all right in its right place, and that place is hell. Matthew 5, 17 to 18, the Lord Jesus says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from this law until all be fulfilled. And a jot and a tittle are two tiny little parts in the Hebrew alphabet. There's a, a little, one thing looks like this, another one looks like that. One's got a little curly Q on the top. That curly Q and this little tiniest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, a jot and a tittle. God says, now one of those little curly Qs now, one of those tiniest little letters is going to pass from this law till all be fulfilled. Don't tell me Jesus came to throw it out. You say, but didn't the Lord say, it has been said, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say unto you, and he threw out all that, didn't he say that? Of course he said that, but do you know why he said it? The Pharisees had said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because... God had originally given them that law to limit the amount of damage they could do. Let's imagine two guys are fighting. One guy punches the other guy, knocks his eye out. Wham! God in his kindness gave man a law to limit the amount of damage that person could legally inflict on the man who took his eye. An eye for an eye. You couldn't punch both of his eyes out, knock his nose out, jump up and down on his head so much he had to unlace his shoelaces to blow his nose as well. He couldn't do all that stuff. And God gave this so that there would be justice when there was necessary retribution. It would be just. It would not be unfair. But what is God's way? Does he deal in strict justice? No, he goes above justice. He goes into mercy where we can wisely show it. And that's what Jesus said. Now, by the Pharisees' time, they'd forgotten the God who gave the law. They had a whole bunch of code of values, a bunch of do's and don'ts. They had to, you know, you couldn't go... They said, no work on the Sabbath day. All right, what is work? Well, walking over two miles is walk, work. So if you walk over two miles from your house, that's working on the Sabbath day. And then what say your synagogue is more than two miles? Well, what you had to do is take a little bit of your bedroll from your house. And that would be considered as your house. You know, and you'd put your bed rolled down two miles and then you'd walk on another two miles and then you could legally walk and all this kind of garbage. Can you imagine two Israelis practicing a sword fight? They're just brothers out in the garden, a couple of sticks, going kacha, 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 like this. One guy goes, ah, like this. And he sticks his brother right in the eye. Whap, you know, pulls the sword out. Ah, and there's an eye on the other end of it, you know. Can you imagine what he feels like? He's jumping up and down, looking at that eye, and his brother's jumping up and down, holding his. And they're all scared, and they don't know what to do, and they're sorry, and they're, you know, it's just a fun thing. And then a Pharisee comes along in the garden. 
What have you done? He says. He says, I knocked my brother's eye out. He says, oh, really? Come with me. He says, what? What do you want? He says, you must knock his eye out. He says, no, it was an accident. He's my brother, the guy with the eye out. He says, the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and you knocked his eye out, and now it's your turn. They missed the whole thing. See that? Jesus came and he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's not throwing out. I say to you, go one better. Love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Pray for them that persecute you. That's the kind of God we have. Christians have often asked, they said, listen, if I get belted in the mouth, what do I do? Somebody belts me, do I turn the other cheek? All right, wham, and he hits me there. What do I do now? And they think it's an either-all thing. See, they think, you know, I cannot have justice anymore as a Christian. I always must be jumped on. No way. Understand, the Christian is allowed to appeal to justice if he wants to. Somebody comes beating up on my person. It just so happens there's a law in this land that you cannot touch my person and that your liberties end where my nose begins. <laughs> and that if you beat up on my person and I don't consider it wise to show mercy and let you off, because you continue to beat up on my person, you show no signs of repentance, <laughs> then baby, I will run you into court. And that is perfectly legal under the gospel. But wherever it's possible, if I'm a Christian, I will love you and try to forgive you and try to show mercy. Do you see that? That's the Bible pattern. And it's not gutless, it's not spineless, it's not a Joe Fletcher situation ethics, it is solid and powerful and it brings men into holy living. And the Ten Commandments are simply that one basic commandment that was always in the universe that men ought to unselfishly choose the highest good just as God does. God put it in a list called the Ten Commandments when people begin to forget what kind of God he is. You find it in words. For man's heart is set on being selfish, he needs a list to show up. You're not going to do this. A man loves God, he doesn't need a list. Who needs to come along telling you what to do in order to love God? He loves God, he just does what God asks him to do. And the Ten Commandments, Jesus simplified into the basic three. I'm going to give you a little principle here that may help you in your, uh, in your teaching. Often you will find passages in the New Testament that are parallel passages. They talk about the same subject. I want you to do this if you want to see what the whole story is. Do a little um, interleaving principle, I call it. Instead of just putting them together in parallel columns and reading them side by side, I want you to take all the different differing parts and weave them together in chronological order. Look at Matthew 22, and I'll just use this as an illustration here, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. And then keep your finger also in Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. I'm going to read to you this passage, which combines both versions into one. In my notes here, you will see that I have two sets of colors here. And these two colors represent the two passages. The only thing I've done with this 
is to simply drop all the parts that are duplicated with the same thing is said in both passages I just drop one of them and leave the other one in alright now listen to this description you can look either at Matthew or Mark and I'm going to weave them together and then one of the scribes came one of them which was a lawyer and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered well asked him a question tempting him and saying master which is the great commandment in the law and then read beautifully see how it reads together it's two different things just interweaved which is the first commandment of all and Jesus said unto him and answered him hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord other passage and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind other passage and with all your strength this is the first other passage and great commandment and the second is like unto it other passage namely this back again you shall love your neighbor as yourself other passage there is none other commandment greater than these back again on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets see how can you tell me the Bible is not inspired when you read that stuff that just weaves together two men writing two totally different accounts of the same thing you put them together and they exactly harmonize like a dovetail piece of machinery and reads in beautiful perfect language there's God see he puts this thing together he really knows how to do things like this now that's that rapidly got to fly on here friends just give you an illustration about unavoidable if you can stop sinning for a stronger selfish reason stop one form of selfishness for another stronger form of selfishness then you can stop any time I'll tell you why here's a kid and he's going to steal something see he looks at that he says man I really like to have that cassette packet he puts his hand out suddenly looks up and he sees a whole bunch of people here he says da, 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 da. why did he stop well he decided to be good no he didn't he valued his reputation selfish reputation more than he valued stealing it see here's a kid he's telling all these dirty jokes ha ha he's having a good time up comes his mother oh hello Marla oh, good to see you mom hi mom see stop listen man if he can stop when his mother comes up he can stop when God comes up don't you tell me that you can't do what God tells you to do you give me one reason why a man cannot do in all of the Ten Commandments if he loves the one who gave them you give me one good reason if you find it you better give it to God God says man is guilty because they've broken his good law do we say man is helpless because he's broken God's rotten law three help me now sin is not physical now I've gone into this in some detail in the little track near Adam and also in the section under Judas in your manuals sin is not physical I want to say a few things about this sin is not a thing Augustine thought it is thought it was 
Augustine was the guy who started off this whole garbage about physical sin transmission and that. Augustine said, and he was a very, really licentious dude in his days. He ran around with all kinds of people. He was really messed up. So physically messed up that when Augustine got saved, he thought his body was sinful. Augustine had a few other things too. He felt that sex and marriage was also sinful. That's where we got our Puritanism through that really that this generation overreacted against and gave us a new morality. Augustine also thought that the souls were transmitted from parent to child. We put that together, brethren, and we get the transmission of a physical sinfulness. If sin is physical, you tell me what it is. Is it solid, liquid, or gas? Animal, vegetable, or mineral? And if you can show me some physical sin, brother, we'll concentrate it and use it to backslide people by injections. Say, well, sin is transmitted in the blood. Oh, really? And a blood transfusion from, into a blue baby before birth from a Christian will make him a Christian baby. Why do you think the Jehovah's Witnesses won't take blood transfusions? They don't want anybody else's sinful soul messing around with theirs. If you believe sin is a physical, you are Augustine's disciple, not Jesus' one. You know what this... Re you know, I don't mind... I'll put up with a lot of things and I'll... I'm willing to bend and throw out whole areas of theology. But the thing I don't like about physical sin transmission is this. It has very practical results. San Francisco, I went out witnessing in the park. Talked to some young people. They said they were Christians. They had Bibles with them. Talked to them. They were smoking pot and a few other things, reading their Bibles. And I said, what are you doing this for? Why are you damaging your body like this? They said, well, you know, nobody's perfect and all this stuff. Then we got on a little further. And they said, well, the reason why this is... I said, but this is sin. And I read out some passages on, you know, they said, yeah, I know I'm ruining my body and that. I read out some passages on the Christian is delivered from this. They said, well, you don't understand the Bible. They said, what is really true is my body is sinning, but my spirit is not. Don't you preach to mixed natures. I read 2 Corinthians 5.17 and it tells me this. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. A-L-L, all things have become new. I believe in a warfare. Uh, the Christian, I know the Christian is not delivered from temptations, but it's not two dogs having a fight in his life. You feed a white dog and a black dog and all this garbage. I never found two dogs in my life when I went for an x-ray. Romans 7, you say. That tells us about the Christian who is selfish. He has this physical sinfulness in his life and that's what makes him do what he does. Who is this man in Romans 7? Why, he's a Christian, he delights in the law of God. Of course he's a Christian. Just that he has this constant problem with sinning all the time. The man in Romans 7, if he is a Christian, is a lost Christian. 
because Romans 8 tells us what it means to be in bondage to the flesh and it says it is death. You show me a lost Christian and then I'll believe you, baby. Romans 7 should not have been separated from Romans 8 because the man in Romans 8 is delivered from whoever was in Romans 7. You say, well, he must be a Christian. He says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. No sinner does that. Oh, really? I have preached in church after church after church and seen all kinds of religiously selfish people saying, oh, God has good laws. Amen, brother, preach it. And they never obey them. Let's look at the Bible and see whether you can delight in the law of God after the inward man and still be selfish. See what God has to say about this. Book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 to 2. Isaiah 58. Listen to these words. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, Show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God these men whom God says show them their sin. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 32, we see other men who delight in the law of God. Also, son of man, the children of your people still are talking for thee, against thee, that six is of thee. Alternate translation, by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, everyone to his brother. Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes forth from the Lord. Come and listen to this preaching, brother. Wow, it'll excite you. And they come unto you as the people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their own covetousness. Whoever the man is in Romans 7, and he's written for the man who's in Romans 7, that story, the man in Romans 8 has found deliverance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin is not physical. Here are quickly You say, Winky, that people could keep God's commandments are you saying that man doesn't need a savior? Of course he does. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why do you say that then? Because the Bible says it. That's why. Well, doesn't that mean that nobody could help it? No, it doesn't. It means that all have done it. That's why they're guilty. God does not say all are sinners. He says all have sinned. He does not say, all we like sheep are born astray. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, everyone. I believe that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
I believe in the universality of sin. I believe man is really, truly guilty. I believe in total depravity, too. Let me show you why I believe in total depravity. I believe when Adam sinned, he became totally depraved, and I believe all of mankind is totally depraved. And I believe Adam's total depravity comes two ways. He made a moral choice first. That resulted in a physical result. His moral choice gave him moral death. It's all sin. His physical choice gave him what kind of death? And by one man's sin, death entered into the world. And this physical result has resulted in a bias which gives man a bent towards selfishness. Men are not born perfect. They are born bent towards selfishness. Why does God judge them? For their bent? No, because of their choice. The passage in Romans 6, Romans 5 also, tells us some things about what Adam did for the race. He wrecked it. Wrecked it physically, and every single one of us does the same thing that Adam did. We inherit physical death, and none of you here will ever not inherit physical death. We will all die physical death. But the Lord has an answer for the Christian. It's called immortality, and he gives him a new body. But all of us, all of us choose selfishness. Do you believe in original sin? Brother, I believe in original sin more than the Calvinist believes in original sin. Because I believe every sinner is very, very original when he sins. He's original because he invents his sin. You take a Bible study on those words for sin, you'll find them in me or Adam. Ten Old Testament words, seven New Testament words, and you show me why sin is not a choice. And you read those words on sin, then come back and talk about sin. Every one of them showed man's rottenness and viciousness and selfishness and deliberate choosingness in sin. Even the simplest word, amatena, amatea. Missed the mark. Does not mean the mark was too high. May mean your aim was not high enough. Little kid was shooting at the moon with a BB gun. D.L. Moody said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to hit the moon. D.L. Moody said, don't be silly, you'll never hit the moon with that little BB gun. Kid said, at least I'm aiming higher than you are. Three, rapidly. Sin is moral. Give you a quick thing here that may help you understand something. In the little sheet, man and the origin of evil, I've done a chart. The heart is the supreme choice of our lives. We use the word heart today the same way. Say, I have my heart set on getting something, I mean, that's what I want, number one. If a guy says, I love this girl for my heart, it means I, I put you first above all the other girls I've ever dated. We use the heart the same way. When God says, my son, give me your heart, it is not simply the will, it is the supreme choice the will commits itself to. It is a thing that governs our whole lives. Our whole purpose is our destiny. Supreme choice. 
based on the supreme choice, there are what we could call sub-choices that are very important. These are things like, who will I marry? Where will I live? What kind of job shall I have? What will be my ministry? These different things. They're very important decisions. They're not made every day of your life. You make them once or twice, three or four times, scattered through a lifetime. Very important choices. They are based on the supreme choice, the heart. Then underneath this, we have another series of choices. You could call them routine choices or habit choices. They are formed by a whole series of little choices we make. Now, can you remember the first time you shaved, you guys? You all do shaving. <laughs> you got up there in front of that mirror, you know, and looked at that thing. I don't know whether your dad helped you or not. He never helped me. I had to learn all myself, you know. And then turned in front of that thing, you know, and tried to put some shaving cream on. We didn't even have hot shave or anything in those days. And, and you had to go like this, you know, and you're scared, skinny. You don't know how old your mouth's like, see? And you're scared you'll chop yourself up into shreds. And after a while, you know, you've done this for years, you're just swinging your jaw around there like an old professional wrestler or something, and vap, 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 and you can do it without a, you know, without a, just holding a razor blade in your hand eventually, according to the television ad. And uh, that's all done by routine. See, you've learned, now you have to say, how do I put on my, you know, you do it, wham, 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 you pull up, you've done it so often, make your bed, hopefully you make your bed. Uh, other things like this. All routine habits. A routine habit is part of God's marvelous thing of memory. We, we, every time we make a choice, we build a series of choices. And that all then is based on an immediate choice. You're making an immediate choice now. Whatever you're doing right at this point now in time. You may be writing, you may be looking up at your cassette recorder because it's about to self-destruct with a tape in it. You may be looking at all kinds of different things, and these are immediate choices. These are the only ones you ever have to think about right now, see? But when God looks at a man, he doesn't look at this, not what are you doing. He doesn't look at how you're doing it. He doesn't just look at why you're doing it. He looks ultimately, and he says, who for? And that's the question. Kids come up to me. How many of your kids have come up to you in a youth group and said, what's wrong with the movies? What's wrong with going to dances? What's wrong with, you know, you name it. Kid comes to me with that question, I tell them the same answer. I'll say, I have two questions for you. Why are you doing what you're doing? And who are you doing it for? You answer me those two questions and I'll tell you where you're headed. You know what we do in society? We say, there's a bunch of good feelings. If you gratify these, you're a Christian. There's a bunch of bad feelings. If you, if you gratify those, you're a sinner. The good feelings are Bible study, prayer, witness, singing hymns. Uh, you know, even feeling good about the presence of God. We could put that up there. Feelings, all right? Down here, we get a, you know, then there's a love of your country. Country. And then, there's a love of your family. And then there's a love of money. Well, we're not so sure about that, brethren. Draw a line here. Love of money. Desire for money. Down here, we have the desire for stimulation. And then sex. And all the way down. 
we draw a line somewhere in society and we say any, any gratifying of a feeling above this is good. Anything below it is wrong. Do you know there's not one feeling on here that could turn you into a devil if you obey it and live for that as the rule of your life? How to be religious without being a Christian? Is it possible to love your Bible and not be a Christian? Of course it is. Because what you do is not really love the God of the Bible and love it because it is his book. You love your knowledge of the Bible and your reputation as a Bible scholar. And you can be selfish. You know who the Pharisees were? There are men who prided themselves not on knowing the law but obeying it. They came from the scribes and it is said that when a scribe transposed the name of the Lord, he used to stop, check every single letter all the way back to when he first began his task, take a new pen, write in the word Lord, and then do it again. And the next time he came to the Lord, even it was five words along the line, he would stop, check everything all the way back, come back, pick up a new pen, write in the word Lord, and go on. The scribes were the base from which the Pharisees came. The Pharisees said, we not only know the law and can interpret it, we obey it. They knew the Old Testament better probably than anybody in this room. But Jesus said, you children of hell. Prayer, isn't this a sign of the real Christian? The Pharisees prayed day and night. You could tell they were praying, man, but who for? Jesus came in, boom. He said, I see you. I know why you're doing what you're doing. No wonder they nailed him up on the cross. Singing, oh Lord, you know, we, I had a girl come up to me. She had won a national talent competition. She said, oh, praise the Lord. She said, I, you know, I really love the Lord, but I'm thinking of dropping out of the Christian life. I said, why? She said, well, you know, I like singing about the Lord and all this. I really, you know, I really praise and worship when I'm singing, but she says, oh, it just doesn't seem too much for me anymore. I said, you say you love the Lord. She said, yes, I read some signs. I said, listen, lady, you messed up in bitterness. Your life is messed up with sexual immorality. You're using drugs. I said, does God tell you to do those things in this book? She said, no. I said, the Bible says if you love him, keep his commandments. Are you doing that? No then don't tell me you love Jesus Christ. I don't care whether you're, you won the whole world's competition in singing Christian songs until you give your life to God. Don't talk about Christianity. Witness, isn't that the sign of the real Christian? Listen to Jesus' words to the Pharisees. Woe unto you, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you find him, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. You have people knock on your door, open the door, a couple of well-dressed young men, hello, we represent such and such a church, we're here to tell you about God and the church. You say, oh really, well do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh yes. You do? Yeah, we believe in that. Have you repented? Yes. Have you been baptized? Yes. Do you speak in tongues? Oh yes. You know? Oh goodness, you must be Christian. Come in and sit down, you know. Wham! Who for? It's where God comes when he asks you, are you religious? Without being a Christian. And the signs of all this are set out. Time is flying, 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 and I've only got through half of this, so I'm going to stop now, give you a break. I think I have to. <laughs> I've got a whole thing here, and I'm going to do this in the next one, all right? Let's...
close in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord. We say we want to run our lives by your book. Help us to do it even when it is not convenient. Help us to do it even when it is not popular because you've only promised to honor the preaching of your word and not the opinions of men. Give us the courage of God to stand up against the rush of the tide, even when that tide is an evangelical tide. Preach with boldness through our lives as we honor your book. And we promise you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there you have it. So if you were wondering how to be religious without being a Christian, there's a good place to start. We uh, we have another tape that follows this one up. He mentions he's going to do another one, and we've got that one. I should have that one up next week. Um, this one uh, is taken from, obviously, from one of Winky's favorite parables, the, the parable of the soils. And there are more messages dealing with this parable, so keep tuning in. And tune in next week for the uh, second half of this one. This is Jim Patton for the MOH Podcast. See you guys next time.